Thank you. Everybody, how are you doing? This is James DeFiori. This is Blackballed. Um, I just want to get right to it. I watched the movie. Um, it was about two weeks ago, and it's called Hating Peter Tatchell. And um, I walked away uh, just really floored at the level of commitment and passion that Peter Tatchell has. He's a gay rights activist. Um, he, uh, I, I, I'm going to let him do the talking, really, because I don't want to do an intro that doesn't sum him up properly. So, um, you know, without further ado, here is Peter Tatchell. Peter, how are you? I'm fine and great and honored to join you, James. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I want to start at the beginning, if I could. The, um, there's a consistency among some of the guys that I grew up with that, had, uh, that have rough adult lives. And almost uniformly, they either have an absent father or a pretty bad one. And I think the movie was a really honest depiction of what your family life might have been like when you were young. And I guess my question is, um, can we start there? And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up in an environment that seemed sort of contrary to your own kind of morals and who you are as a person? Well, you're right. My global human rights work for the last 54 years very much grew out of the kind of upbringing I had. Um, my family were very poor working class evangelical Christians. Uh, they had no sense of a wider social responsibility. Our life revolved around the church and the family. Uh, my stepfather was very abusive towards both me and my mother. Um, we had no luxuries at all. There were times when we struggled to put food on the table. But the one thing good that my parents taught me was to stand up for what is right. They always taught me, don't follow the crowd. Think for yourself and do what is right, even if it is unpopular. And they basically meant that in a religious sense, you know, to stand up for Christian values. But I interpreted it much more widely. And so even I think about the age of 13 or 14, I'd never heard of liberation theology, but I gravitated to those bits of the Bible, given my very devout Christian upbringing, which were about human liberation, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the idea that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, the Good Samaritan, um, the duty to be our brother and sister's keeper. So these things I really took to heart. And of course, I took them to their logical conclusion, which was to say that I couldn't sit back and do nothing while I saw you know, poverty and injustice around me. 
And you were in, you grew up in Melbourne, is that right? Melbourne, Australia, yeah. And how long did it take for you to, um, I think the documentary said that you left after high school, you, you moved out after high school was finished, is that right? Well, I moved out of home. Um, I had to leave school at 16 because my parents couldn't afford to keep me on. Um, they needed my income to help support the family. So I began work at 16. Um, I came out as gay at 17, but by then I'd already been very active in championing the right of indigenous Aboriginal people who were treated as second-class citizens in their own country. Um, and also against Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and the draft that was uh, enlisted for uh, recruits to fight that war. So when I came out, I already had a sort of a political background. Um, and looking backwards, you know, I actually very much was influenced and inspired by the black civil rights movement in America. Um, I can remember at the age of 11 in 1963, uh, hearing about the bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, where four young girls about my own age were murdered by white racists. Um, I remember thinking to myself, how could anyone kill another human being, let alone four young girls in church on a Sunday morning? So that prompted my interest in and inspiration by uh, the black civil rights movement. And because of my very, very devout Christian upbringing, I could very much relate to Dr. Martin Luther King, who was, of course, also a Baptist pastor. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting contrast because, um, you know, you, you think that uh, someone who does what you do, um, and I, I, I don't even recall hearing if you uh, were an atheist or not. Um, for some reason, I assumed you were, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything that I could be projecting. But the, just that contrast where you're able to extrapolate the good, positive aspects of a religion that often speaks out against you. Yeah, I mean, quite clearly, when I realized I was gay and began campaigning for LGBT plus rights in 1969, um, I hadn't heard of the Stonewall riots, by the way, in New York. But I did hear of a subsequent LGBT plus protest in New York, probably in September, or October that year. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, yes, I want to be part of that. And um, at that time in Melbourne, Australia, in the state of Victoria, homosexuality was still a very serious criminal offence. You could be jailed for several years and even forced by the courts to undergo compulsory psychiatric treatment to cure your homosexuality, supposedly. Um, there were no gay rights organizations, no counseling services, no helplines, no switchboards, absolutely nothing. But inspired by hearing about that protest in New York, I decided to be a, a lone one-person campaigner. And because I didn't have a reference point uh, in terms of an LGBT plus movement, I took my inspiration from the black civil rights movement in America. You know, I tried to adapt their ideas, their values, their methods to the struggle for LGBT plus freedom. Yeah, and, and I think I was actually going to ask you that question, so I'm glad you brought it up because um, that was another part of the film that I sort of took with me because um, I, I've been talking to people lately about um, whether or not that modern day activists and we don't have to get into this, but uh, you know, could probably learn a few lessons from the activists back in the 60s, just in the way that they um, strategized and the way that they executed their 
protests just seemed more organized and and you know more to the point but uh, either way th that touches on politics as well and i think the film opens um with you getting punched in the face <laughs> in russia and i'm not laughing at you getting punched i i'm i'm laughing at the um i think i'm laughing at the balls that it takes <laughs> to to go to russia and put yourself in harm's way like that um you know uh, where at a time when the regime was really cracking down on, on gay people. And, you know, do you worry about that stuff uh, or do you just have to ignore it so that you can get through with it? Well, for those who don't know, I've been physically violently assaulted over 300 times. Jeez. I've been arrested a hundred times. I've had 50 attacks upon my home, including bricks and bottles through the windows, three arson attempts, even a bullet through the front door. Mm. I've been subject to half a dozen murder plots and received literally thousands of hate letters and death mails, uh, death, uh, death threats over the last uh, five decades. So yeah, it, it is wearing, it's scary. Um, there've been many moments when I've been afraid that I would be killed, but I've always taken inspiration from others who have put their necks on the line. You know, I think of the very brave, heroic campaigners in Russia, China, um, all kinds of countries around the world where people are struggling under incredible difficulty and very, very adverse circumstances, yet they risk their life and their liberty to challenge tyranny and to protest for human rights. So for me, it's, it's really important that you know, we take a stand, you know, I'm not expecting everyone to do what I do, but all social progress is the result of people standing up and saying enough is enough. Um, I, it's, it's awful that you get, um, you know, attacks on you at your home. Um, I saw that in the documentary that you have to unlock like three different keys. Do you think that plays a part in how safe it is to, <laughs> to, to get home? If you're ever getting chased, Peter, I'm a little worried that you might be spending a lot of time with those keys. Yeah, I'd be a gunner <laughs> if someone was telling me right behind. I'd, I'd never <laughs> get a flattened time. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my, my home is like a fortress, you know, um, bars on the windows, um, three very heavy duty locks on the door, um, a steel reinforced door frame, um, a fire mat in the hallway, a fire extinguisher, a fire, a fire blanket nearby. Um, <laughs> it has been like living under siege for many, many years. And the most of the attacks are from far right extremists, um, but also some from uh, Islamist fanatics and from supporters and defenders of various tyrants who I've challenged over the years, like Vladimir Putin, um, Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe and others. Yeah, I was just going to mention the uh, Mugabe one because he's, uh, I think it was his bodyguard that punched you in the face, knocked you down or whatever. What, what I find interesting about those moments, about that moment specifically, is that here he's an international um, you know, world leader and his goons are surrounding him and where's our where's your goons? Like, where's your country's goons in that situation? Like, where's the security to to sort of add that buffer between, you know, activists or media or whatever and world leader and their goons? Well, you're right. I mean, I did two attempted citizens' arrests of 
the Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe. The first one was in London in 1989. Uh, together with three other colleagues, we ambushed his motorcade in the street, running in front of his speeding limousine, forcing it to halt about six inches from our legs. And then we ran behind the car so it couldn't go forward and it couldn't go backward. And then I ran to the uh, left-hand rear door. Uh, amazingly, it was unlocked. I opened it and placed President Mugabe under arrest on charges of torture under British and international human rights law. Um, when we summoned the police, their reaction was, first of all, they were gobsmacked that it was the <laughs> president of Zimbabwe in the car and that we had him under arrest. But basically, they just knocked all the dossier, all the legal affidavits out of our hands. We were arrested and he was given a police escort to go Christmas shopping in Harrods. Um, the second time <laughs> was an ambush in the um, lobby of the Hilton Hotel in Brussels. Mm -hmm. um, I had a tip off. Uh, that Mugabe was meeting European Union commissioners in the hotel for lunch. Uh, I knew he had to meet the Belgian Prime Minister at 3 p.m. later that day. So I lay in the lobby from about 2 p.m., uh, trying to look inconspicuous, looking at the, the ties and scarves in a boutique by the uh, hotel exit. Um, so I was in the lobby area near the exit. And so as his entourage walked through the uh, lobby to exit and get in his car and go to the Prime Minister's residence. I stumbled out into the midst of his bodyguards, but I was smiling and holding out my hand as if I was going to shake his hand. So that disarmed them and I got right up close next to him. And then I, I, I said, you're under arrest on charges of torture. I was immediately seized upon by his bodyguards. They beat the hell out of me uh, and other bodyguards rushed Mugabe into the big revolving door to exit the hotel. Uh, but they were impatient and they tried to push it to make it go faster and it got stuck. So they were all stuck in the big revolving door. So they <laughs> motioned to the bodyguards who were beating me to come and help uh, release the door. While they did that, I ran out the fire exit and confronted Mugabe on the other side of the revolving door. And then, of course, when it was released, I was set upon by Mugabe's henchmen and eventually beaten unconscious. Now, that was a pretty awful experience and I didn't intend or want it to happen. Mm. But perversely, it was very effective because people concluded if President Mugabe is prepared to beat a peaceful protester unconscious in broad daylight yeah. in the heart of a European capital city, in front of the world's media, just imagine what he's doing to his own people when no one is watching. So it really made it made a global media impact and helped raise public awareness about the brutality and tyranny of the Mugabe regime. You know, it's it's good that you use your superpowers for good reasons because <laughs> you know you have a you have a knack. Like, what are all the things that you have to be good at? You have to be good at slipping past security or talking to them in a way where they let you in places. And um, and I remember seeing in the movie, I thought I saw this, maybe I was mistaken, but um, from recollection, I almost felt like I saw moments where cameramen were behind you kind of trying to gear you into the controversial area where bad things might happen. Is that something that, did I imagine that or did that happen? No, in, in some of my you know, direct action protests, you know, I have worked with the media 
to bring them along so that what I did and the issue I was trying to raise can get uh, a public viewing in order to raise awareness and to put people in power under pressure. So, yeah, there has been a, a sort of a symbiotic relationship with the media. Um, sometimes it's worked to my advantage, sometimes not. But, you know, you win some, you lose some. Well, that's the thing. Like I, 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 I say superpower. I think what I mean by that is like the because um, it does take courage. You know, I, I have a few examples in my life um, of, of where I had to do certain things that were kind of mischievous or whatever. Um, one time I, I went to a G20 summit and I was at a protest and the cops in Toronto were like, you can't go anywhere over near the convention center. And they point to it. And so the next thing I did was climb to the roof of the convention center and take a picture of the cops that told me I couldn't go there. <laughs> so I thought it was <laughs> it was interesting. You, Good for you. Good for you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, no, normally people just shake their head at me. But um you in the movie went to Easter Sunday mass and an interrupted mass in the most amazing way I've ever seen the the bishop um or was he an archbishop of canterbury is that who it was the archbishop of canterbury the leader of the church of england and the leader of the worldwide anglican communion like that must have been so satisfactory like the, the, just the you must have been in 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 a whole you must have been in heaven peter <laughs> Well, the reason we did that protest, it, it was a last resort. You know, we tried to meet the Archbishop, Archbishop for eight years. He wouldn't meet us or anyone from the LGBT plus community. Um, we were angry that he was not only saying that gay people were sinners and should repent, but he was actually lobbying Parliament to oppose gay equality. He was saying the law should discriminate against us because, in his view, homosexuality is inferior to heterosexuality. So we felt he had to be challenged if he wouldn't meet us. So that's why we chose the Easter Sunday service, um, the big occasion in his calendar, which was televised around the world. And all we did was simply calmly walk into the pulpit and we criticized his support for homophobic discrimination. You know, I, I simply said, uh, discrimination against LGBT plus people is not a Christian value. Discrimination is wrong. It's contrary to the love and compassion that is recorded in the Gospels uh, as being attributed to Jesus Christ. And um, <laughs> the upshot of that was that um, um, I was arrested um, and um, the upshot. I, was, I was eventually charged under the Ecclesiastical Courts Jurisdiction Act of 1860 formerly part of the brawling act of 1551 Blasphemy. and under those laws any interruption of a minister of religion in a place of worship is deemed to be uh, illegal um, i could have been sent to prison for some months and fined a huge sum but the magistrate accepted that the protest was brief and peaceful so he fined me 18 pounds 60 <laughs> about 30 dollars 30 us dollars um <laughs> And the, the, the outcome was very positive. Uh, first of all, the Archbishop dramatically reduced his public advocacy of discrimination. Uh, he did meet with the lesbian and gay Christian movement for the first time. And other bishops in the church were quite shocked that he was advocating discrimination. So they spoke out in favor of equality as leaders of his own church. So it was a win-win-win. Yeah. Uh and that's like a perfect storm of, of, you know, great conclusions. Um, and you mentioned that the, you know, obviously the archbishop was just echoing what's 
common in many religions, um, which is the anti-gay stance and it's a sin and all that. Um, what your another thing your documentary taught me is that um, I didn't, I wasn't aware, and that's probably just because I'm Canadian. I think I was like between the ages of like one and five at the time, but I didn't realize that Margaret Thatcher had actually gone on television and said in some big speech of hers that um, that that she, that. that what did she say? She was fearful that the gay agenda was permeating throughout schools or something. And I was just like, I can't, well, I've never seen a world leader from a Western nation say that before. Well, well, she said more than that. She actually attacked the right to be gay, suggesting yeah. there was no such right. And very soon afterwards, she introduced the notorious Section 28, which prohibited local authorities, including uh, local municipalities, schools, education and health authorities from doing anything that might be construed as endorsing or supporting same-sex relationships. So it meant that for 15 years, until that law was eventually repealed, you couldn't mention anything about LGBT plus issues in schools uh, under under threat of, of prosecution. And this meant that LGBT plus kids were bullied with impunity it meant that they got no support, even if they were anxious, depressed or suicidal. Schools just shunned them completely. It, it, it was damaging to a whole generation of young LGBT plus people. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it is one of the great shames of you know, British government in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And, and what an inspiration, though, uh, uh, you know, hearing you know, the, the Prime Minister of England speak like that for you to be motivated. Yeah, what, it, 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 was, it was a galvanizing uh, speech <laughs> in the wrong way from her yeah. point of view. It, it galvanized our community to fight against her and the homophobia of her government. Um, I, I hesitate to say this joke because I, I, I don't want to cheapen anything, but um, I'll say it anyways because it came into my head. Um, if you chased Robert Mugabe down the street in 2021, they might call you racist. And well, I think even back then, we got stick from some people on the left who accused us of having a racist agenda. But we were not criticizing him because he was black. No, of we course. were anti-African. We were calling out his human rights abuses against his own black African people. So we were actually standing in solidarity with black people. And I think the real racists are the people who criticized us, but refused to do anything to help black Zimbabweans. Yeah. And I mean, again, you know, I wasn't, uh, I, I'm not trying to make light of it at all, but the, the, you know, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because it gets talked to, to death, but do you find that there's a generational difference and, and a sort of that new generation of kind of like really well-meaning woke people that seem to sometimes have a little bit Orwellian type takes on what you should be able to say and not say and all that kind of stuff. Is that helpful, detrimental to, to movements on that originate on the left? Is it completely inconsequential? I don't well, Of course, we all know that free speech is one of the most important and precious of all human rights. Many people were jailed and even killed because they violated the bans on free speech. So, you, th you think about the persecution of many people who challenged the church in the Middle Ages and beyond. Uh, you think about Galileo Galilei, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud. They were all 
denounced as having caused great offense but you know <laughs> that's the way the world is you know some of the most important human ideas in human history have caused great offense in their time um you know there's no right to not be offended you know mm. we have to in a free and open society um accept that some people will say things that we find offensive and disagreeable and the way to deal with that is not by bans or prescriptions or no platforming or cancel culture um because that doesn't change anything what what we need to do is to protest against them uh to counter them with arguments and evidence to show why they're wrong and that's how you change hearts and minds so in the 1970s 80s and 90s i would accept every invitation to go on tv and radio to argue for lgbt plus rights even against people who were absolutely vile bigots who said that people like me should be locked up quarantined uh, in one case someone said we should be gassed but i i went on the program not because i hoped to persuade those particular bigots but because i knew there was an audience of millions of people watching or listening and by engaging and showing why those bigots were wrong i and others helped to change hearts and minds so to me that's the way to go you know there there are perhaps extreme examples where it is necessary to cancel someone or and not give them a platform so if they're making um um false damaging allegations that someone's a rapist or a pedophile if they engage in threats menaces or harassment or if they incite violence i think those are three legitimate examples um where a person can be denied a platform uh, but otherwise i think protest is the best way and you know just only a week or so ago i was defending a christian street uh, street preacher in in london who was arrested for simply saying that homosexuality was wrong and immoral now i totally disagree with him mm. but he wasn't threatening anybody he wasn't being abusive or insulting uh, i think it was wrong that the law was used to put him in a police cell for nearly 24 hours and to have him face charges um criminal charges that would give him a fine and uh, a criminal conviction i don't think that's the way to go i think we want to challenge those people but not use the criminal law and i think people on the left ought to know this because we have been historic victims of this you know in the late 1960s i nearly lost my job because i was seen by my boss at work uh, opposing the vietnam war you know he said i was through my activity as an employee albeit indirectly i was bringing his company into disrepute um at a time when Australians were very divided about involvement in the Vietnam War. Um we in Australia had our own version of McCarthyism in the 1960s where anybody with liberal progressive opinions was denounced as a communist. You could lose your job, you could be denied funding, uh all all kinds of terrible things could happen to you. And the left rightly fought that. We opposed McCarthyism then and I oppose modern versions of McCarthyism. Now. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko and I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokémon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub and so many more. 
we'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundle, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. And, and would, it, would an example of that be, um, like, would, it, would almost like the case study of the kind of divide that we're experiencing right now would J.K. Rowling fit in that space of, because I'm very confused as to why people don't like her. I, I, like, I understand what their argument is, but I don't understand why it's an argument. And I'm, and I'm, and I want to learn. Like, I, listen, I, 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 you know, it's not something I have too much experience in. I just feel like trans people exist, but I think that trans women and women are obviously different things, but still equal. And I don't understand why that is controversial. Yeah, well, in the case of J.K. Rowling, she has what I would call trans-critical views. Um, in a free society, she is entitled to those views up to a certain point. You know, if she goes beyond to start saying that trans people don't deserve equal rights, that they should be denied equal treatment, um, if she incites or threatens or harasses them, that, of course, is wrong. But she hasn't done those things. Um, I disagree with her profoundly, but I think the way to deal with J.K. Rowling is to engage with her, to engage in public debate, to show why her views are wrong, to explain why trans rights are consistent with women's rights, and that women, all women, including trans women, are victims of domestic abuse, discrimination, violence, and rape. Therefore, they have a common interest in working together to challenge the misogyny that damages them all. Now, I think that is the way to go. Um, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm very reluctant to go down the route of cancelling people. Of course, if people feel strongly, they don't have to buy her books. They can boycott her events. Um, but, you know, some of the calls to have her prosecuted and things like that, I think, are a step too far. Is it? Is there... Um... Is there a, a talking past each other element here where one side says this is obviously pre a prejudicial position and the other side is like, well, wait a second, why is that prejudicial? And that's the argument. So for example, um, I, I, think, I think I have um, a position on whether or not trans women should play athletics. And, and my position is that since the physicalities are different at a biological level, that there is an advantage for trans women. And I feel like there's people that think that what I just said is prejudicial and wrong to say, and I don't know why that would be. And I just want to have a good dialogue about it sometimes, and sometimes it just gets lost immediately, and I don't know how to approach the topic at all, or even if I should, <laughs> if I don't have a vested interest in my, in my just, you know, wasting everyone's time. 
Well, I mean, my view is that trans rights are human rights. The trans people are victims of incredible levels of toxic prejudice, discrimination and hate crime. Just look at the latest figures coming out of America this year, 2021 is set to be the most violent, deadly year for trans people in the United States. Uh, we have to stand in solidarity with the trans community. Um, I think that when it comes to individual issues, in my view, trans women are women. They're not the same as other women, but their difference as trans women is perfectly valid and perfectly reasonable. Um, when it comes to sport, I think it's a generalization to say that trans women have advantages because you will find that the physiology, the physiology of many trans women is no different from that of other women. You know, they're not big, bulky and so on. Many trans women are quite petite, so they have no advantage. Moreover, um, I think it's wrong to single out any potential advantages they may have over the advantages that other athletes have. So there are lots of athletes who have the advantage of being uh, extra tall, or very long legs. That gives them an advantage in sprinting, in high jump, uh, in pole vaulting, in a whole, whole range of sports. There are others who have extra large hearts and lungs so they can take in more oxygen, they can pump it faster and more effectively. That gives them an advantage. There are others who have fast twitch muscle fibers which gives sprinters uh, a, a particular advantage over those that don't have them. So when we talk about advantages, I'm concerned why are trans people being generalized as being big, big and beefy and you know, bulky uh, when many of them are not? And why are their potential advantages being singled out when other advantages are not? And I, I, I don't agree with you, but I, I respect your opinion. Um, you know, I think, and by the way, I think that probably the bedrock of actually making progress anyways. Um, and uh, I think when we were, you were talking earlier about free speech, I want to just- yeah, 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 just, finish, just finish on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, please I go ahead. I was reading a debate recently about Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer, one of the greatest swimmers of all time. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he had really big advantages, extra long arms, huge hands and very flexible ankles and that gave him a huge advantage in the pool but right. no one said that he should be banned or denied his medals so it's, it's the inconsistency and double standards that i'm trying to get at perhaps we've just been inundated with the anecdotal examples of the clearly colossally bigger trans woman on the field i've seen a, you know i've read a lot of stories and 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 seen a lot of photos where you're like you know uh, okay, that seems, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, you look at it and you're like, oh, wow, but you know, this probably shouldn't happen. Um, so maybe it's a case by case basis. Cause like if yeah. the rock came out as trans and decided to go do women's boxing, then it might be a problem. And I'm just saying like, they, they, I don't know if there should be a sliding scale of weight and height or bone density and testosterone levels. I, I have no idea. I, that's not my, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor or a medical physician or anything like that. Yeah. So no, I, 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 think you're, yeah. I think you're right. There have been many atypical examples. I mean, I was recently looking at, I think it was the English rugby, women's rugby team. And boy, look at those women. They're, they're, they're not trans, but they are huge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, when I grew up, um, I, had the, I had the advantage of, um, 
my mom played women's softball. And so like for like seven years, every Saturday, I had nine lesbians party at my house during my formative years. So I, I was sort of lucky in that regard that I had like this um, early um, uh, lesson of, of accepting everyone and everyone's equal. And, and it, you know, probably shaped me for the better in that, in that regard. Um, and, and one of the things that uh, when you said that you took uh, something from the 1960s black movement was one of those things, and I think it has a name, but I can't remember it. Um, the non-retaliation sort of protest when they were getting food poured on them at the, uh, at the restaurant and they just stayed still and they just, you know, they didn't retaliate because you're kind of, you kind of look non-threatening. So when you go to a protest, I can, I don't see people running away and cowering in fear. And then you end up getting, you know, physically assaulted. And I feel like, um, you know, it, it be, that becomes the symbol of, of a victory of sorts. And so you're like a boxer in the, at the end of the day, like you, you come out with war wounds and if you have war wounds, that means you kind of won the day. That that's kind of, that's a schizophrenic existence. I bet sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I very much model my activism on the nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience of people like Mahandras Gandhi in India in the struggle against um, British rule mm -hmm. and uh, the struggle of the Martin Luther King and the black civil rights movement in America. You know, total passive resistance, um, never retaliating with violence, even though violence has often been done to me. I mean, you know, most of the teeth in my mouth are chipped and cracked and have been reconstructed because of various assaults I've had. I've, I've got a bit of brain and eye damage from the concussion and beatings that have been inflicted upon me. But, you know, I've never, ever retaliated in kind. And you're right. When that is seen, uh, you do win the moral victory. You know, you, you take the higher ground, the moral high ground, and you know, your, your oppressors are seen as the bad guys. Do you think that the um, when you were in Russia and you were you were briefly detained, I think, weren't you? Yeah. Um, do you think that it was just like, OK, the world is watching. We should just let him go. Or do you think you got lucky? Like, how did that play out in your mind? Well, in fact, I've been to Russia five times to support the LGBT plus movement there. And um, I've got notched up three, three, three arrests to my record. Hmm. But I've only ever been detained in police cells for you know a maximum of a few hours and i'm certain that having a british passport has been a protection uh, I'm, I'm certain that the russians want to try and avoid what they would see as bad negative publicity in the international media so that's what sort of safeguards me um, but the russian activists whether they be lgbt plus or democracy activists like the supporters of Alexei Navalny and others, um, they don't have that protection. They haven't got a foreign passport. You know, they are much more vulnerable. And as we all know, many of them have ended up in prison. Many of them have ended up very badly beaten, either by neo-Nazis or sometimes even by the police. Um, so that makes their activism even more courageous, heroic and inspiring. Are you, um, and have you been doing this for a long time, or maybe you, you, you don't do it that much, but are you um, an advocate for those that are imprisoned? Like, is that part of your overall mission right now? Yeah, we, we work with other organizations um, to try and get prisoners released. 
or if that's not possible, at least to get prison conditions improved and access to medical uh, care provided. So we do that supporting the work of organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and others. So um, your organization is the Peter Tatchell Foundation. Um, and uh, I can encourage, I didn't know what to, what to post, so I can encourage everyone who's watching to go and you know, make a donation. Um, obviously it's a good cause. I'm not ending the interview, I'm just you know, <laughs> inter interjecting with that for a second. Um, your name on a foundation, uh, I can't tell sometimes if you, um, and I think, I think Stephen Fry said it in the movie, if like you, you're, you're, you're this amazing mix of like humility and ego. And and it's like a wrestling match, and like then you guys just come together, and good things happen. Um, you know, is it is it weird to see your name on top of a building or on you know on the billboard or whatever? Are you kind of used to it? Well, the foundation, the Peter Tatchell Foundation, was not set up by me. Uh, I had been working for forty five years, unpaid, doing human rights, doing bits of journalism and research, living on about less than ten thousand dollars a year digging into my own pocket to fund the work I do. So I, I have pre pretty, pretty tough and pretty impoverished life for many, many years. So what happened is that a group of friends and supporters said, look, you, you can't go on doing this. You know, you, you need an organization, you need an office, you need staff support. You need um, a bodyguard. Well, well <laughs> yeah, I haven't got a bodyguard yet. But um, so they set up the foundation and I didn't want it to be called the Peter Tatchell Foundation for the reasons yeah. you allude to. Uh, I wanted something like, you know, the Freedom Foundation or something. But um, the uh, founders, they said, well, look, you have national and to some extent international name recognition. So it's much more effective and it will get much more traction if your name is on the organization. So somewhat reluctantly, you know, I agreed. but. It isn't really about me, it's about the causes. It's about the struggles and battles that I'm trying to support in Britain and indeed around the world. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I, mental health probably plays a massive role in this. Like watching these clips, um, watching that Thatcher clip and watching, you know, um, just the verbal abuse, I, you know, I, I, it's funny because I never like to talk like this, but as a straight white guy, it's, I guess I don't know what it's like to sort of have like your very identity demonized by a majority of people. Um, and I imagine it's quite traumatic, uh, you know, and, and I don't know, I feel like all of these bad experiences that you've had, like whether it be your stepfather or, you know, living hand to mouth is often the key ingredient for you to be able to do what you do at the same time. Well, yeah, I mean, some people have described me as monk-like. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have made quite a lot of personal sacrifices, uh, financially, living conditions-wise, and so on. But I love what I do. You know, to be able to contribute to advancing human rights and to make life better to people is a reward and an honour far greater than any financial um, reward. You know, I, I think of over the last 50 plus years, I've helped at least 20,000 people, you know, victims of hate crime, discrimination, um, all kinds of bad things have happened to them. I've helped lots of people gain refugee status here in Britain who fled persecution 
because of their politics, their race, uh, or their religion in other countries, and, and also their sexuality as well. Um, I've also helped um, advise and support literally thousands of LGBT plus and other human rights organizations in countries around the world, giving them tips on how to do good campaigning, putting them in contact with journalists, um, enabling them or encouraging them or actually facilitating them to get interviews on primetime TV and radio. So that's an awful lot of work to do. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I just feel so privileged and lucky to be able to do that. And at the end of the day, my, I suppose, bottom line motivation is very simple. I love other people. You know, I love freedom, equality and justice. I wouldn't want, um, you know, to be left alone if I was suffering, you know, if I was being victimized the way some of these people I've helped are, you know, I would expect and hope that people would come to help me. So I feel duty bound to do whatever I can to help them. And, you, you know, you, you have all that hate mail and those threats over the years, but I'm, I'm certain there must be, um, you know, uh, a sizable amount of love mail as well. You've inspired me. Thank you for doing what you do. I it was able to come out to my parents because of you, those kinds of messages. Then that must be great fuel. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic when you get that kind of feedback and, you know, just recently we've been helping a trans woman in Saudi Arabia um, who has been horrendously victimized, although she is working for a big international company. And we managed to get in contact with that company's head office and get the problem fixed. Um, likewise, a few weeks ago, uh, we got a message from a young um, person in Pakistan, uh, a young Christian man who was being threatened to be killed because he was a Christian and because he had allegedly uh, insulted Islam. In fact, he hadn't done any such thing. This was a trumped up charge against him because um, a group of people in his village wanted to take over his shop. You know, um, so these are things we're dealing with all the time. And to be able to help people get through these adverse situations, I mean, it really is, it really is what drives me on. You know, I'm often exhausted, but you yeah. know, when I see the changes, the positive changes that I and my foundation can help bring about, I think, oh, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Do you have hobbies, Peter? <laughs> not when you're, you know. Well, when I was young, I had a great passion for art and design, and that's my what I did as my first job. Um, but um, <laughs> getting relaxation time is a real struggle. I mean, I, I two days ago I went for a walk to the lo local nature reserve and sat there in the sunshine for fifteen minutes, listening to bird song. Uh, watching butterflies, bees, and wildflowers. <laughs> then I came back home. So yeah. it was about a 40-minute break. Um, I do watch an occasional film or TV series. Um, sometimes I listen for, you know, 20 minutes for, to some music, but I do not get enough downtime. I, I'm the first to admit that. Uh, one of the things that I enjoyed um, in the movie is, again, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it back up because I think everyone needs to go see it. Um, it's on Netflix, Hating Peter Tatchell. Um, it, it tells his full story, or probably not his full story, but it tells a really great um, story about, uh, you know, his journey as an, as an activist. And um, 
it was neat seeing uh, Stephen Fry and Ian McKellen and people like that talk about you as if you were the celebrity. <laughs> well, no. I'm not a celebrity. I, I'm just a human rights activist. I do my bit, and so do many, many other people, and it's collectively that we make the change. Yeah, I've heard Tom Cruise on the movie set give credit to the whole crew too. I've seen that happen. But I think you might be the Tom Cruise of activism. I'm just like, <laughs> I, I, I think you're that, you're that, you're that big probably. Um, where in the world, and there's probably a bunch of places, is the main fight happening right now uh, for LGBT issues? Well, I think across the board, democracy and human rights issues, uh, not just LGBT plus. Um, obviously what's going on in China, Hong Kong, Tibet, uh, the Uyghur region and South Mongolia is pretty dreadful. I mean, really, really heavy repression there um, against people who simply want to be able to live their lives and speak freely. Um, you know, Putin's regime in Russia is ever more tightening the grip. Uh, only just yesterday, he said he couldn't guarantee that Alexei Navalny would not die in prison, uh, which sort of reinforces the view that um, that's probably what Putin would like to happen, that Navalny will die in prison, um, just like Sergei Manitsky was murdered after he blew the whistle on um, Russia's corruption uh, under the Putin regime. Um, there are many other countries, you know, the recent election in Uganda was not free or fair. You know, there's, there's no doubt that the uh, process and ongoing violent intimidation and even murder of opposition activists and supporters um, meant that that election is basically null and void. Yet the president, Yoweri uh, Museveni, uh, remains in power and even to this day is still holding hundreds of people without trial, torturing them, and the international community is doing nothing. It, it is so, so shocking. Museveni, mm. Museveni is the new Mugabe. I think I have an answer to the international community question because um, I had Noam Chomsky on and, and my friends are laughing right now because I've been dropping Noam Chomsky's name ever since I interviewed him because it's awesome that I got to interview him. Um, but he said the world is run by gangsters. And, and it was funny because then he used the United States as another example. And then, you know, not, not too long after that, uh, they, comes out that America spies on its allies at UN conventions and G7. So that's interesting. But, um, you know, yeah, the, the, I, don't, I don't for one moment want anybody to believe that I think the West gets off like lightly, you know, oh, no. we have our own big problem. I mean, just in recent weeks, we've had revelations about the unlawful killing of peaceful protesters in Northern Ireland by the British Army during the civil war there. I mean, shocking examples of innocent people being murdered by British soldiers with the connivance of the British government. Total impunity. No soldier has ever been charged or convicted. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of those things um, that we need to start having honest conversations with each other about is uh, that progress uh, for certain things are quicker in certain places and then vice versa, right? So, you know, uh, the, I, I'm, I am always struck when I see the uh, list of countries that still have the death penalty for gay people. And it, and it does have an obvious racial sort of consistency, um, but, but it's mostly a religious uh, decision uh, for these states. And have you ever gone to any of those countries? Just curious. 
I have indeed, yes. And yes. Um, wow. you know, obviously not to go for a holiday, but to campaign. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it is very shocking that in many of these countries, their anti-LGBT plus laws were originally imposed in the 19th century by countries like Britain yeah. during the period of colonialism. And they still, even after their independence, they still have these laws on their statute books. So Britain has a particular poisonous legacy. You know, the Commonwealth Association of Nations, nearly all the countries, the 35 countries that still have anti-gay laws, nearly all of them, those laws were imposed by Britain, you know, 200 years ago. Yeah, I'm just looking it up right now because I just want to get it right. Um, and I, I think, I can't find it with that search. I, I think it's Nigeria, but it was like, Republican politicians were teaching, was it Uganda or Nigeria? Um, they were basically writing the anti-gay legislation for this country for them to pass. And that was just yeah, like in of, the last 15 years, I think. Yeah, a lot of US uh, Republicans and Christian evangelicals have been going to Africa and stoking the fans of homophobia, um, you know, helping to fund um, homophobic politicians and helping to write new anti-gay laws. And of course, religion is always one of the pillars to prop up something like that. Um, do you owe um, what I almost feel like you've made your peace with religions, you know? And, and, and is part of the reason that because of your mom? Because she seemed really religious, but she also seemed like she loved you. And then sometimes it felt like she was like, I love you, but I'm worried of whether or not you'll get into heaven or something like, was she like a linchpin for that kind of understanding? Uh, I suppose so, but you know, by my late teens, I I'd broken with religion. You know, I'm I'm, I'm a humanist and atheist. Um, obviously, you know, people who have faith, you know, they have a right to their faith, but they don't have a right to be privileged and to demand that their faith be the law of the land. And that is the problem with a lot of evangelicals is that they want their particular interpretation of Christianity enshrined as the law of the land. They're, well, basically, what they want is, is, is democracies to be theocracies. And we can't tolerate that. You know, I'll be the first to defend um, Christians who are persecuted, like that guy in Pakistan I mentioned, um, you know, like the street preacher who I said had been arrested. I will defend their rights, but I won't defend their privileges. No. Um... I'm pretty militantly atheist. I think it's a lot of ridiculous. I just advocated for, I, I just published an article advocating the invasion of the Vatican, uh, like not to park carpet bomb them, but to arrest them for crimes against humanity and to take all of their riches inside the Vatican and disperse it among all their countless victims. I don't think there's enough money in the Vatican for that, but um, I was raised Catholic. And uh, so I have a big chip on my shoulder when it comes to Catholicism and all that kind of stuff. But um, I, I think it's, uh, you have something I don't, which um, is I can't actually see religion um, in a good light. <laughs> like I, it's it's too difficult for me. I think I should you know stick to Catholicism because that's really what I'm talking about. And I have a hard time understanding why people would still go to the church and and pray in an institution that has done all of the things that they've done and just find it morally reprehensible. So. If you know how, as an activist, you can help me invade the Vatican, I'd be very appreciative. <laughs> I'll give us some thought. Yes, please do. Um, the movie is called Hating Peter Tatchell, and um, I, 
I'm encouraging everyone to see it. Uh, it is an excellent film. Um, the foundation is the Peter Touch Foundation. And um, because I didn't, I just go to the website, but uh, in case uh, you can uh, ask your questions and make donations and inquire about stuff like that at info at petertouchfoundation.org. And Peter, it was really nice meeting you. Um, thanks for getting through all those tech difficulties at the beginning. And, um, you know, I had a great time. Well, thank you so much. And, um, you know, best wishes to you and all your listeners and viewers. To um, you as well. You know, we are part of a global community. You know, all of us on this planet, we're interconnected. And our futures depend on each other. You know, we, we live in this interconnected world where, you know, we can't isolate ourselves. You know, we are part of one big human family and the sooner we learn to live and love together get along with others who are perhaps different from ourselves the happier the world will be and i'll just finish by saying that uh, my motto is don't accept the world as it is dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen and Thank try not so to much. get and try not to get knocked out while doing it <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thank you. I'm going to end it there because that was a good ending. Um, that, thank you very much to Peter Tatchell. Um, we'll be posting the show. It's live right now, I'm pretty sure. And um, yeah, that was a good one, guys. Uh, really happy that you could join us. I'll see you on the Dean Blundell show in about an hour. Thanks again. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Do, did, Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.